you'd open your Bibles with me to 2 Corinthians chapter 2, we'll be looking at verses 5 through 11 today. John is zapping me. I didn't mean to make you leave, but you can stand right there. Um, here's, two, here's the introduction, and then we're going to read this passage. And then we're going to try to reckon with the God who has given it to us. This is not hyperbole. This is not, uh, I hope, not false humility. To my bones, I believe what I'm about to say to you. I'm the worst sinner I know. Not only in the sins I've committed. Those are horrendous. And the ones I will yet commit that I don't even know about, but God does. Those make me tremble. And I don't think it's disingenuous to say again, I am the worst sinner I know. Introduction point number one. Introduction point number two, which is the last one. We all have a natural impulse, like your reflexes, to think that if somebody really knows you, the real you, they won't love you. So, point one and two create a problem. Because I believe that lie all the time too. I'm tempted to believe it. That if you know the real me, you're not going to love me. But the conclusion of the introduction is this. The Gospel is an amazing... It would be amazing. Amazing means unbelievable. It's almost amazing. The Gospel is the truth that God knows you to the depth better than you know yourself. And loves you more than you could ever imagine. And the local church, what 2 Corinthians 2, 5-11 is about, is a place where you should fillet your own heart open. People shouldn't have to get a hammer and a chisel to get into you. You should fillet your own heart wide open. Lay yourself out there before the people of God. Live in a mode of repentance. And realize that this incubator, this, the local church, is God's good gift to us to be held accountable for our sin and to be welcomed at the level ground of the foot of the cross as we walk together in repentance, pursuing Christ in His fullness. The title of today's sermon is The Hospital for Sinners. It's what the local church is to be. The text is 2 Corinthians chapter 2. I invite you to verse 5. I'm reading from the New American Standard. Hear God's voice. But if any has caused sorrow, he has caused sorrow not to me, but in some degree, in order not to say too much, to all of you. 
Sufficient for such a one is the punishment which was inflicted by the majority so that on the contrary, you should rather forgive and comfort him. Otherwise, such a one might be overwhelmed by excessive sorrow. Wherefore, I urge you to reaffirm your love for him. For to this end also I wrote, so that I might put you to the test, whether you are obedient in all things. But one whom you forgive anything, I forgive also. For indeed, what I have forgiven, if I have forgiven anything, I did it for your sakes in the presence of Christ, so that no advantage would be taken of us by Satan, for we are not ignorant of his schemes. Well, may God help us to understand what that's about. Let's ask Him again to do that very thing. Father, we now come to You. We pray that You would show us that You know us fully and You have loved us infinitely in Christ. And I pray that You would show us that the local church is only for the bad people. Not the righteous. Not the ones who have it all together. And I pray for this local church that You would give us the people from this community, from this city, from this region, that nobody else wants. I ask that You would give us the most broken, the most backwards, the most upside down, the most inside out. Give us all the bad people. And cause them to find that the fountain of Christ is more than all the sin of all of us combined. Come, Jesus, and show us the cross. By the Holy Spirit, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. One commentator, Barnett, said that this passage is about a triangle of three relationships. On one axis of the triangle, you have the Apostle Paul. On another axis of the triangle, you have a man. A one. Verse uh, 5 and 6 talk about. And then you have, on the third axis of the triangle, the church at Corinth. So Paul, offender, a local church. I would just say there's two more points and no longer therefore a triangle. Unfortunately, there's also Satan. He's in verse 11. And most importantly, there's Jesus. And those are the five points of the sermon. One of the brothers in our church, along with a handful of other brothers who are serious students of God's Word here in our local church and one who's already gone on to pastor elsewhere, have taken it upon themselves to try to summarize every sermon passage through the book of 2 Corinthians as we've outlined it for this sermon series. And their summary in one sentence of this passage, I believe is very fitting. They write, Forgiveness and comfort to repentant sinners by the church is a protection for the church against Satan's schemes. What a loaded sentence. Forgiveness and comfort to repentant sinners by the church is a protection for the church against Satan's schemes. It's really in light of a summary sentence like that that we had previously titled this sermon, The Hospital for Sinners. I see this passage, as I mentioned, in five parts. Number one, verse five. Unchecked sin sickens the whole church. 
Verse 5, if any has caused sorrow, he has caused sorrow not to me, but in some degree, in order not to say too much, to all of you. And in verse 6, we find out that this is one person, such a one, verse 6, who caused sorrow, not only to me, but to all of you, verse 5. So one person's sin had sorrow sickened the whole church. Unchecked sin always affects not only the sinner, but people around them. Jonah's boat was sinking, not owing to the sins of anybody else in the boat, though they themselves were all sinners. But it was Jonah's sin that was causing the boat to be overwhelmed by the waves before he was tossed overboard after the cargo didn't work, being hurled over the edges. Your sin never only affects you. Ever, ever, ever. Your sin always affects people around you. And just like the Old Testament camp of Israel, the sin of one man, Achan, was going to bring God's judgment on the whole lot of the community of Israel. Your sin never only affects you. This principle is applied from first to last in the Bible. In fact, the third chapter of the whole Bible is about the sin of one man affecting the entire race of humanity. Adam's sin. Your sin never only affects you. That's verse 5. This is probably not the same man as is mentioned in 1 Corinthians who was in an immoral relationship with somebody of his own family tree. Most commentators agree that this is a different discipline situation in Corinth. So this church couldn't have been more than a few years old and they're already facing at least their second excommunication situation. Which means when a person is in unrepentant sin, they've been approached by one brother or sister and urged to repent in light of the Gospel and has not done so. Two or three more come, urge the same Gospel repentance, not met favorably, told to the whole church in order that the person might listen perhaps to the congregation at large and their appeals and still having not repented. This is at least, if not the same person mentioned in 1 Corinthians 5, the second excommunication case where Jesus tells us that such a person should then be removed. They should be treated like a Gentile and a tax collector. Scott Hafeman summarized the majority view of, of this fella in 2 Corinthians 2. Paul nowhere mentions the specifics of the offense itself. And then Hafeman later adds, it was probably a slander situation, not a sexual immorality situation, but slander specifically against the Apostle Paul. And then Hafeman concludes, whatever the case was, most of the Corinthians had initially sided with the slanderer. They believed his lies. What we find in this situation is that one person had caused a lot of damage. Not by doing bad stuff, but by saying bad stuff. Destructive speech. I love that one of our sisters prayed in the prayer meeting the Ephesians 4 passage, which I'll cite in a moment, about sins of the tongue. It had caused serious damage in the Corinthian congregation. A little bit of leaven leavens the whole lump. James talks about this little muscle a lot, doesn't he? The Lord's brother, James, the writer of the book of James, says that the tongue, being such a small muscle, is able to set the whole world on fire. James 3.6 Imagine what your tongue could do destructively to just a little church. 
putting the pieces together about the situation in the church at Corinth and the letters Paul had written and sending Titus back and forth to them, we can see that the person in view in verse 5 had caused, quote, sorrow to all of you, had done the deadly work of spreading unfounded suspicions about Paul. And many in the congregation, I think Haifman's right, probably most of them, bought his narrative. And when the apostle was then perceived in the back of the conscience of the church as a malicious person, then the damage was done because his message was going to be hard to hear and doubly hard to believe. Friends, it doesn't matter what the particular sin is. When sin goes unchecked, it always affects the whole church. One man's sin, sorrow to everybody. That's number one. Number two, verses 6-8. to eight. What do we do with it? Well, the local church is God's triage tent. Out on the war field of following Christ, there's carnage all over the place because sin knows no bounds. But the local church is supposed to be the triage tent. When folks are suffering from shrapnel damage and wounds from war, we see sin wreaking havoc. We're all supposed to be part of the medical team, spiritually speaking, soul physicians as a local church. And there are three ways in verses 6-8 to eight that this is supposed to look. Number one, verse 6, sin requires sufficient punishment. It's not a suggestion. It's God's standard. In fact, Jesus will kindly excuse Himself from any so-called church who lets sin go unchecked. You can keep meeting. Open your Bible, do your religious stuff, go home, do it again the next week. And everybody can gather, but Jesus won't show up. All you have to do is read His letters to the churches in Revelation and Revelation chapter 2 and 3 to find out that He will remove a lampstand from churches that allow sin to go unchecked. So, what does sin require? I'm saying in verse 6, it requires, quote, sufficient punishment. Verse 6, sufficient for such a one is the punishment which was inflicted by the majority. When we need to find out where the cancer of sin is located, God has given us the triage tent on the war field. It's called the local church. Where by His Spirit, He's doing the work of diagnostic, but He's doing it through His people to diagnose a problem. And, not just to point it out, but to do so for the prescription, for the remedy. In the case of the Corinthians, we see that they, were, that they quote, inflicted punishment on the man who was divisive, divisive in the church. So what this means is basically this. This slanderer, was met with, the following, uh, met with the teachings of Jesus by the followers of Jesus in the church at Corinth, it means they excommunicated Him. They removed Him from the body. He was no longer part of the church's fellowship. So it works like this. When a physician in our day, to use the illustration, sees a terminal sickness, illness, in the body of one of their patients, but, they know that in their cabinet, they have the remedy. They have the right approach to care 
to mitigate against the destructive effects of this cancer that's killing their patient. It would be, as we all know, just by common sense, not by only the Hippocratic you know, oath, it would be malpractice. We just know this. For any physician to allow their patient to continue on without warning them of the impending dangers of not receiving proper treatment. You don't want that doctor to be your doctor if they're not going to tell you that that cancer is in you and that it's going to kill you, especially if they have a surefire remedy. Similarly, the local church is to identify the cancer of sin. And once identified, diagnosed, if the person will not repent, they're to be removed from the fellowship. Why? So that the whole body doesn't, doesn't suffer the destructive effects of that unchecked sin. The church then is the triage for sin in that sort of way. We're to call everybody to the cross of Christ. Everybody. Nobody gets to go without denying self and denying sin. We all have to turn from sin. Nobody's exempt from that. And the local church is the place where we call everybody to the level ground at the foot of the cross where repentance is required of us all and forgiveness is abundant for us all. But if a sinner willfully continues in their pattern of self-destruction and church harm, we are to lovingly apply the redemptively designed teachings of Jesus who calls us to call for such a person to turn from their sin, and if they will not, to be removed from the fellowship. That means that the punishment, that's the word Paul uses in verse 6, is aimed not at retribution, but at redemption. It's not, let's get all the sinners out so we'll be a holy place. It's let's call all the sinners to the only place where real forgiveness is going to be found. There's a way that the punishment can actually yield a beautiful, God-glorifying fruit in the life of the offender. Meaning, he stops committing the sin. And he also stops trying to pay for his sins. And he just brings it to the foot of the cross where Jesus has paid for it already. The Gospel is the only sufficient punishment for our sin. That means we have to have a Gospel lens when we're dealing with other fellow sinners. That's why I opened the sermon by saying, I'm the worst sinner I know. If we don't get that, then we cannot properly diagnose anybody else's sin. And we certainly can't properly prescribe the right remedy. This is what we mean. We are the least deserving of God's grace. If you know that truth, but the penny hasn't dropped deep in your soul, you're just not going to extend grace to other sinners. You'll be self-righteous even about the good things you know. But when you do know by faith in the risen Jesus that you are the least deserving. Let's just do a little exercise for about 10 seconds. There's about 8 billion people on planet earth right now. Right now. 2 plus billion of them have never heard the name of Jesus. They don't know that He came the first time. They don't know what He accomplished. And they don't know that He's coming again. Unless they hear of Him, 
they will perish into a Christless eternity. Now, why have you heard? Why have you been made, uh, had the gospel made accessible to you? You're the least deserving. Not only is it accessible to you, many, if not most, I pray, Lord willing, all of you have embraced this Redeemer. And if you have, you'll know that you yourself are the least deserving of His mercy. Gospel people don't say, well, I see why He saved me and not Him. I mean, after all, God got lucky to get somebody like me on His team. I can understand why so-and-so is not part of the kingdom, but I mean, after all, what was God doing all that time before He got... That's not the Gospel in the heart of a believer. The Gospel looks around and says, why me? Why not her? Why why not him? Lord, do it. Go get them. If you can give me, you can get them. So that's first. God's grace to us is the least deserving. And second, God's grace to others through us. When everybody in the fellowship knows that they're the least deserving, then the Gospel creates a culture of Gospel grace in the church. We're not ready to smash fellow sinners. We're looking for a needle of the grace of God in a haystack of their sin. Is there an evidence that God is at work? And when a person who's caught in a trespass is called to repent, if there's a needle of grace in their haystack of sin, they'll respond favorably. They'll say, oh, I'm embarrassed. I'm actually not only humble, I'm actually humiliated that you know about my sin. But thank you. Thank you for calling this to light. I don't want to bring dishonor to my Jesus. That's something of an adequate and accurate response to a culture of grace in a local church. Which leads to the next little sub-point here under number two, the local church as the triage tent. Not only does sin require sufficient punishment, verse 6, but repentant sinners, repentant sinners must receive forgiveness number seven uh, verse seven on the contrary you should rather forgive and comfort him otherwise such a one might be overwhelmed by excessive sorrow barnett said in his commentary lest he be consumed with grief the corinthian church must now instead forgive and comfort him you see sorrow for sin is not a bad thing We here at Grace Church are not sorry if you feel guilty. And we're not happy if you don't feel guilty. You are guilty. Whether you feel like it or not. Sorrow for sin is not a bad thing. It's a gift. It's a gift. We've been hiding since Genesis 3. We've been sowing fig leaves together to try to excuse our guilt since Adam and Eve fell in the Garden of Eden. Sorrow for sin is not a bad thing. It's a gift. But excessive sorrow is a terrible thing. It doesn't come from the heart of God. It comes from the pit of hell. Putting the pieces together, we can discern that the order of interactions with Paul and the church of Corinth went something like this. I may have two of the steps out of order, but it went something like this bullet point. Paul went to Corinth, preached the gospel, people got saved, a church was started. He stayed for 18 months. 
year and a half. He was their pastor. He taught them about the beauty of Christ, the sufficiency of the cross, the depth of God's Word. He just loved these people with the truth of the Gospel. He left. Sometime after he left, he hears a report from Chloe's people about problems in the church, and they send to him questions about some of the problems. So Paul writes 1 Corinthians, which was actually the second letter he wrote to them. He's answering some of the issues. Every single answer is, here's how the gospel applies to the situation. That's why last year we preached a series called The Gospel for Life from 1 Corinthians. Well, then he either sends Titus or writes the sorrowful letter. But one way or another, he corresponds with them. Titus brings back the report, or following the sorrowful letter, Titus visits and then brings back the report. But the sorrowful letter is because Paul got a report that there was a guy in the church slandering him. And pretty much everybody bought his narrative. Paul wasn't worried about his reputation. Paul was deeply grieved that if the people rejected the apostle of Christ, they would reject the Christ of his gospel. That was his beef. Was it his personal reputation? It was their eternal salvation. Well, so Titus comes back to Paul. Again, the order may have those two flipped, but Titus comes to Paul and he says, I told that guy that if he would repent, you forgive. And if you forgive, the whole church forgives. And Titus brings back a report. He repented, they didn't forgive him. So now he's writing them a letter. And he's putting them to the test. And he's saying, we don't want verse 7 to happen. Such a one be overwhelmed by excessive sorrow. See, forgiveness is not a power play. The church has a gospel job to do. Which Paul has already done. They are to verse 7 this man. Forgive him and comfort him. Do you see how they become the channel through which the grace of Jesus flows into this man's life? The gospel culture transforming the whole church. Paul's saying to this church, and we'll get to an explicit statement about it in just a moment, he's telling this whole church, your whole congregation has to be shaped by the cross. Now if we ever have a facility of our own, it'd probably be inconvenient to actually shape the main hall as a cross because we couldn't see the people over there or over there. But... Paul's saying, you have to be shaped by the cross of Christ. They're to forgive the man and to comfort him. And here's how it works. Just as it is antithetical. I tried to lay this down as number one. It is antithetical. It is diametrically opposed to the Gospel of Jesus to allow an unrepentant sinner to wreak havoc on the bride of Christ. That's opposed to the Gospel. It is also completely out of step with the Gospel, verse 7, for a church to withhold forgiveness and the comfort of Jesus from a person who repents from their sin. Withholding such grace will, verse 7 them, cause one to be overwhelmed by excessive sorrow. The you in verse 7 is plural in the original. You all forgive Him. You all comfort Him. Now, if they took a vote on it, and it passed 99 to 1%, percent, 
the one would be absolutely wrong because God told him to do it. This isn't unity without uniformity. This is all of you have to be so shaped by the Gospel that you are leaning forward, eager to extend Gospel grace when you detect Gospel repentance. The punishment wasn't unanimous. We know that because it says it was inflicted by the majority. That's 50% plus one at least. So the majority of people saw this as a huge problem and they excommunicated the man majority. That should have been unanimous. Paul is clearly stating that the congregational affirmation of forgiveness and comfort though ought to be 100%. You vote against this one, you're not voting against Paul. You're voting against everything Jesus came to accomplish in His life, death, and resurrection. All we have is a Gospel for sinners. Jesus didn't come to call the righteous. He came to call sinners to repentance. Jesus' first sermon is one sentence long, Matthew 4.17. At that time, He, quote, began preaching repentance. And when you repent, the floodgates of God's mercy open. Paul's saying that there's a way to wield ungodly power, ungodly power, over a person whose sin has been acknowledged. If somebody says, yes, you're right, that's out of step with the Lordship of Jesus. That's opposed to the cross of Christ. When they acknowledge it, they have to take another step. Confess it. I was wrong. When they acknowledge and confess, they also must forsake it. I now turn and I welcome any help that God might give me through you. Or Balaam's donkey. Or an enemy of the cross of Christ. Any help He will give me, my heart is wide open because I want Jesus the King to be honored inside of me. So when it's acknowledged, confessed, and forsaken, to destroy that person, all you got to do, all you got to do is withhold horizontal forgiveness. They might be rightly restored back to the Lord. But if you just want to ruin them, all you got to do is not forgive them. Such a disposition actually flips the church upside down. Instead of being a hospital for sinners, the so-called church becomes more like a country club for self-righteous people. Oh God, may Grace Church Memphis be a place that the worst of the worst, those who have sinned extravagantly, find Jesus the King to be the source of limitless grace and find the people of Grace Church to be a culture of Gospel grace toward anybody who will meet us at the foot of the cross. Friends, the ground is level at the foot of the cross. Level. It really is simple, isn't it? Apart from Christ, God help them hear it. Apart from Christ, everybody's going to hell. Full stop. Period. End of discussion. No more paragraphs. But in Jesus, there's grace not only for the most vile of sinners, but there's also forgiveness.
and reconciliation from sinner to sinner. Jesus is that wonderful. Heaven is going to be heaven because Christ is there. And every single person there will be rightly related to Him. And every person that's rightly related to Him will be rightly related to their fellow man who is rightly related to Him. And the church is supposed to be a picture of that. So the third aspect of number two is that the extension of grace to repentant sinners is God's own love on display. This goes back to what I touched on in the... uh, announcements a moment ago about caught and taught aspects of the Christian life. Verse 8, wherefore I urge you to reaffirm your love for Him. The word love here is agape, just like it is in the previous passage in verse 4. Just as the church had publicly confronted the man's sin, they punished him. That was a majority vote. So also they needed to publicly reaffirm his restoration to the Lord and to them. I urge y'all to reaffirm your love for Him. This means that gospel love is to be put on tangible, visible display. And His love on display is what the human heart is most exhilarated to experience. This is why I said earlier in the introduction, we all have a reticence deep within us to think that if somebody fully knows us, they're not going to fully love us. Do you see the example Paul's using? This guy sinned against Paul. It harmed the church. Paul's telling the whole church, you know his sin. Now, you got an opportunity to show him. Knowing him fully and loving him completely is the thing that everybody's heart would be exhilarated to experience. You see what he's doing? He's cutting the legs out from underneath self-righteousness. We are not a country club for good people. There are no good people here. God, please send that dart into our culture again. There are no good people here. We are only bad people. The Gospel is only for sinners, those who are enemies of God. And Paul's saying, you know this guy was an enemy of the cross. He was setting himself up against not just me, but against my Gospel. He's repented. I'm forgiving him. Now you know him. You show him agape. That's the word he uses. You show him God's love. It just puts every sermon on hypercolor in the community. People in the neighborhood knew that this man had been excommunicated. How are they going to welcome a guy like that back? Jesus. The local church is a place where all who flee to Christ for forgiveness are welcomed and accepted with the love of Christ, by one another. Number three. Verse nine. We've touched it already, but now he just says it explicitly. What we find here is that the Gospel must be the pattern for the local church's behavior. So you triage tent in verses six to eight. You find out the problem. You punish the sin. Repentant sinners get forgiveness. And the extension of grace is a reminder. It's a vivid picture of God's own agape love. Verse 8. Verse 9, the whole reason that happens is because all we have is the Gospel. That's why Paul said in 1 Corinthians, I determined to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. That's the person and work of Jesus. Jesus Christ, 
God's own Son, truly man, truly God, and Him crucified. His Gospel labors to redeem us, to forgive us, to make us God's own forever. That's all we have. And that's what He says in verse 9. For to this end also I wrote, so that I might put you to the test whether you are obedient in all things. Without telling you what's coming, I'll set you up for the kill. Do you like this verse? We've got to ask it a little deeper. Do you love it? Paul's previous letter, he mentions in verse 4, the tearful letter was crystal clear. The unrepentant man needed to be excommunicated and remain under discipline until he repents. That's a very sad situation. But now that he's repentant, what are you going to do with him? Paul calls it a test. I'm putting you to the test. We're trying to figure out if you got the real Christianity or some peddled version of it. Are you obedient in everything? Have you experienced a forgiveness that allows the same to flow right through you to other people? Because when you see yourself as a guilty sinner under the cross of Christ, and you find His love flow into your soul on the basis of faith and repentance, then you are ready and willing to turn and extend that same grace to your fellow man who is also repentant. It's been said many times that the main difference between a lost person and a saved person on this side of eternity is that Christians are repenting sinners. Not sinless. Repenting sinners. That's the vivid difference between a lost person and a saved person. It's not what they know. It's how do they respond to Christ and the Gospel. Do you live a life of repentance? I love verse 9. Paul called for the whole church to be obedient in all things. Obedient to what? The answer is certainly Paul's message, but it's deeper than obeying Paul. Paul is calling them to obey the Gospel. He knows forgiveness is hard work. Because we don't have the resources to give it. Unless God gives us what we need to do it. We call things forgiveness that are not really forgiveness. Leverage is not forgiveness. Matthew 18, Jesus tells a parable that puts us all in checkmate. How many times do I have to forgive, Jesus? Do I need to forgive seven times? You don't have a math problem. You've got a heart problem. Seventy times seven. Unlimited. Just like God. In Matthew 18, the picture we get is of the king who forgives the billion dollars of debt to his subject. And that man walks right out of the steps of the the, the king's palace and, and goes down to the bottom step and sees a guy on the sidewalk who owes him five dollars and the man chokes the guy that owes him five bucks. And when the king hears about it, you remember what happens. Jesus says, bring him back. And the ending of that verse is absolutely sobering. Matthew 18.22 We find out that that man is thrown into an ocean without mercy, without grace, without remedy. You see, the only way you're able to forgive the person next to you of a great debt is to realize the great debt that you have been forgiven of by God Himself. That's what Paul means by put Him to the test. 
Ephesians 1, we've received redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of His grace which He lavished on us. Soak your soul in those truths until your soul is wrinkled like your body after a long bath. Just get contaminated with things like Ephesians 4.32 which was prayed earlier. Be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving each other as God in Christ has forgiven you. So, the Gospel has to become the pattern. Puts us to the test. And the fourth point is this. Number, verse 10. Forgiveness is others-oriented. I think I've gotten this wrong with an accent mark. Not like wrong as in categorically untrue. But I have gotten this wrong many times on where the accent falls. Verse 10, but one whom you forgive anything, if I forgive also, if indeed, for indeed what I have forgiven, if I've forgiven anything, I did it for your sakes in the presence of Christ. The accent I got wrong is, I've said many times, and I think there's truth in it, that not forgiving somebody else is like drinking acid. It doesn't hurt them, it hurts you. That's true. That is true. To release that person to the Lord, whether they repent or not, to wrap the gift of forgiveness if they're unrepentant, put it on the shelf and say, your name's on it, you can have it whenever you want to, I've already given it to the Lord, you can have it too. And if they repent, you just give them the gift off the shelf. I believe not doing that is like drinking acid. It hurts you. But that's not what Paul says in verse 10. He straight up says, I did it for your sake. So forgiveness actually has an others-oriented element. The Gospel teaches entire churches, not only individual Christians, not to demand payment for our sins from one another. Instead of saying, think about it, I urge you to send this guy a bill in the mail and when he's paid it in full, then welcome him back. No. It's rather, if he'll meet you at the cross, reaffirm your love for him. Do you want to know if you have forgiven someone? Do you want to know if you've forgiven someone who sinned against you or sinned against the congregation? Answer this question. Will you use their sin as leverage in the future if they walk in a mode of repentance? If so, you have not released that matter to the Lord. Paul says, I forgive, and I'm doing it for your sake, and I'm doing it in the presence of Christ. Paul knows that what he's saying is that Christ's presence is the standard, that's the baseline, that's the ground of the measure of his own forgiveness. It's not just, I'm magnanimous, I'm good at doing forgiveness, I'm going to give you some. Christ's presence. That's verse 10. Just as Jesus Never. If you feel this way, it's totally self-imposed. It didn't come from God. Jesus never holds the anvil of your confessed sin over your head as leverage against you. Ever. As far as the east is from the west, never to meet again so far as your sin separated from you. If you repent, your slate is clean before God and it will never be brought against you as a reason that you're not good enough for Him. So also, Paul's given this man a clean slate of forgiveness. Sin may have consequences. We're not denying that. The Bible doesn't deny that. 
It may be loving to not allow this person to go without accountability. I'm not saying that he can use his testimony of confession as leverage against them either. That's another sermon. But I am saying the aftercare for a truly repentant person cannot be punitive. It can only be Gospel-driven. Redemptive in the presence of Christ. In that Matthew 18 parable, the guy who was owed $5 and choked the man after he had been forgiven a billion, Jesus says in verse 34 and 35, His Lord moved with anger, handed him over to the torturers until he should repay all that was owed to him. My heavenly Father will also do the same to you if each of you does not forgive his brother from your heart. Christ doesn't forgive us for His sake, does He? He forgives us for our sake. That's where I think the accent mark needs to land on. There's a way to forgive, not just because the asset will kill me, but it'll do something wonderful for you. It's been said that withholding forgiveness is like drinking that acid, but gospel forgiveness is not only for our sake, though it will set you free from that bondage of bitterness. Gospel forgiveness is like verse 10. It's for your sake. I want you to experience freedom. I don't want to have leverage against you. I want you all, church, to do the same thing for this person so that he has the freedom like wings on his back. He can fly now. He's free. He doesn't have to wonder what you think about him anymore. He doesn't have to be suspicious about your love for him even though he made you suspicious of my love for you. Look at this grace. He wanted them to be able to forgive the repentant man for their sakes. And he had done so in the presence of Christ. Finally, verse 11. It's so vitally important, isn't it? Paul knew that Jesus had taught us to pray, forgive us our debts as we have forgiven those who have trespassed against us. What a, what a way to pray. And, and I, I wasn't sure that I understood that verse. Do you mean conditionally forgive me only if I forgive everybody who sins against me? Is that what you mean, God? Don't forgive me unless I give forgiveness to other people. Is that the right way to pray that, Jesus? He clarified it three verses later. For if you forgive others their transgressions, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others, then your Father will not forgive your transgressions. That's pretty clear. And the reason it's so vitally important, you don't merit God's forgiveness by doing forgiveness toward others. You prove that you've been a recipient of forgiveness by giving forgiveness to other repentant sinners. God doesn't forgive unrepentant people. He doesn't do it. You're not more benevolent than God. But there's a big issue here at stake. If you've received forgiveness and you won't give it to repentant people, church at Corinth, Satan's got you in his grip. Boy, this is a big deal in verse 11. So that no advantage would be taken of us by Satan, for we are not ignorant of his schemes. See, Satan is not overt. He's covert in his operations. He schemes. He likes to take advantage. That means he's not up front. He wants to take advantage of you. He wants to slip in and apply a submission hold on you that you never saw coming. 
The word take advantage in verse 11 could be translated outwit you. Get the upper hand on you. Paul at the end of the verse talks about his schemes. We're not ignorant of his schemes. Satan wants the church to look like a holy club to the watching world. A place where only the clean people get to belong. And it kicks out all the untouchable people. And Jesus tells us through John in his first epistle. We love. It's this way in John 4.19. 1 John 4.19. We love one another because God first loved us. I mean, you can apply it this way if you want to, but the verse is talking about this way. It's not we love God because God first loved us. It's we love you because God put it here. And in that same context, verse 12 of 1 John 4, we learn that this is the way people see God. Isn't it amazing that in 1 John 4, the love chapter, love, 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 and this is love, not that we love God, but that He loved us and gave His Son to be the propitiation for our sins. We love one another because God first loved us. It's just love all the way through 1 John chapter 4. Verse 12 says nobody's seen God at any time. But, if we love one another, that's how people see Him. And Satan doesn't want you to do that. He wants you to get this dead wrong. He wants to scheme. And he wants people who sin to never have redemption. He wants them to think that there's no way they can ever be restored. Fie on that. I close here. Grace's 13 year history. It breaks my heart to say to you that we have had nine level three cases of church discipline with one restoration. That does not count the multiplied other undesirable situations that have not been level three disciplined, but have been oh so close. There have been cases of adultery, denying the existence of God, people vanishing and not being ever willing for whatever reason to ever talk to another member again. There have been two cases of decade plus long domestic abuse. There have been unsolicited advances on people that would not cease. There have been extramarital romantic relationships where people wouldn't repent. It would be unloving to let somebody continue in sins like that and treat them like we think that they're a believer. That doesn't count the situations that have made it to level one, to level two, each of which represent hundreds of hours of prayer and gospel appeals by many people in the church, not only the elders, intense counseling. And I'm here to say to you loud and clear, may the Spirit of Jesus restore every one of them. All of them. That's the goal. That's the, goal. That's the aim. That's what we want. If you don't want it, your heart's out of line with the gospel. Because that's Satan's scheme. Is there a way to get restored? Yes! The cross! The cross is for sinners! One of those has come full circle, praise God, into a moment of restoration to this body and having moved on now to another place. What a, what a privilege to be able to forgive and comfort and show agape love. So I have an application for you. Join a church. I could just say period. Because if it's a real one, it'll do all the stuff I'm about to say. Join a church that loves you enough not to allow you to live in unrepentant sin. But the only way they're going to know that oftentimes is if you avail your life to them.
I'm saying join. That's a proactive action verb. Go get involved. Don't just get your name on a list. And if you're a member of a church and that's all there is to it, I don't know what you meant by join. Bring your life into the light of Christ alongside the people of God and experience the exhilaration of being known and loved as we all walk in a mode of repentance. That's number one. Two, join a church that's going to hold you accountable to walk with Jesus. Number three, join a church that will extend the mercy of Jesus to all who are repenting sinners. And the final one is not a to-do, it's just a warning. Otherwise, if, you, if your life is not shaped by what I just described in that brief application, you're playing right in to Satan's schemes. And that's what God said. That's a dangerous place to live. So bring your life into accountability in the ecclesia so that the love of God, which has been shown to every one of us undeserving sinners, can continue to be shown through us to one another for the glory of Christ until He comes again. Would you join me as we pray? Father, we have so much reason to be full of trepidation when we think about the horror of our sin and the beauty of Your holiness. And we all tremble. We shudder. We shrink back. Because it seems like there would not be enough mercy for sinners like us. But then, Lord, thank You, by Your grace, by Your Holy Spirit, through Your Word, You show us that there is more grace in Christ than sin in us. And the fountain is ever flowing and never stopping for any who will come and put their life under the cross into the hands of the risen Jesus. There is nothing but redemption, forgiveness, and grace, and love, and acceptance, and full adoption, and privileges forevermore. Every blessing in the heavenly places belongs to those who are in Christ. So thank You, God, for the beauty of the Gospel. And thank You that You have seen fit to collect those people into these living organisms of local churches so that we can help each other live in light of that beautiful Gospel. So I pray that anybody who's under conviction today because they know full well that they're living in a pattern of unrepentant, habitual sin, oh God, for Christ's sake, would You haunt them? Chase them by the Holy Spirit. Don't let us sleep well at night. Just put a burr under our saddle. Cause us to have deep conviction of conscience. Whatever it takes, Lord, don't let us live in unrepentant sin. And for those who see their sin for what it is and flee to Christ, oh, how we pray that this church will be a hospital for sinners like that to experience restoration, forgiveness, time and time again through the regular discipline of being transformed by the Word of God and even through the corrective discipline when our sin has to be called out. Let us all flock to Jesus, Lord. We ask this for Your glory. In Jesus' name, Amen.